Welcome back, Crimeholics. It's your host, Holly, and holy cow, I cannot believe that we are here in November. I hope that those of you who celebrate Halloween had a fun time doing whatever you do on Halloween, whether it's taking your kids out trick-or-treating, passing out candy, or just snuggled up watching scary movies. I hope that you had a blast and a safe holiday. I spent the evening taking my littlest little out trick-or-treating while my husband and my oldest handled scaring trick-or-treaters with our spooky setup at our house. Before we dive into today's case, I do have a quick correction that I need to make on a previous episode that I covered. On April 15th of this year, I covered an unsolved case about Tammy Cooper and her three children who were murdered in Lubbock, Texas. In that episode, I mentioned that Tammy only had three children, all of which were murdered alongside her, but that was incorrect. One of Tammy's oldest daughters reached out to me after listening to my episode on her mother, and she informed me that though the news articles never mention her or Tammy's other daughter, Tammy did in fact have five children in total instead of three. Tammy's oldest daughter's name is Latreva, and the second oldest and the one that reached out to me is Waltrina. In their younger years, they lived apart from their mother, but in the years prior to her murder, she and her sister were reunited with their mother. And while Trina actually helped name Tammy's twins when she was just 13 years old, I wanted to make sure that this information got put out there because while Trina and Latreva also matter in this case because their mother and siblings were taken from them. These two women are left hoping for answers on their mother and their sibling's murder, and I never want victims' family to feel forgotten or left out. I'm glad that I am able to set the record straight and include them in all of this, as this is very much their story and very much a loss for them as well. So thank you for reaching out and connecting with me and letting me know and your kindness through our discussion. I also will have the link to that episode in the description of this episode, so if you want to get caught up on that case, if you haven't listened to it yet already, you can do so. So today's case is one that some may be familiar with, but it's one I honestly didn't know a whole lot about prior to doing research. This case is one that has gone on to change laws and make a huge difference within our country today which I always admire when families fight for change after such a tragic loss. I want to touch on a topic really quick before we get into details of this case, and I know I usually try and not do too much chatter before I start an episode, but I do believe this is important. I often get asked on TikTok about how I feel about talking about such tragic things that happen to real-life people, and I think sometimes people don't fully understand the interest in true crime. And while true crime consumers find some entertainment in listening and watching, I truly believe the purpose of true crime is more than entertainment and is more about learning. You can learn so much about how to protect yourself, things to watch for, ways to be aware, and so much more when listening and watching true crime. Not only that, but we can learn about issues like what those within the Native American community face. We can learn about social injustices in cases. We can learn about the lack of urgency so we can do better in the future for victims. There's just so much that we can learn. 
And the same can be said for this case. There is so much to learn from this case, which, of course, we will get into all of those details. Lastly, I do want to give a trigger warning on this case because it does involve a violent sexual assault and murder of this young woman. I always want to make sure that I give these warnings in case this is a triggering topic for some, and I want to respect everyone, so if that's a trigger for you, please just skip this week's episode. So I think I've done enough blabbing, so let's get into the case details. Today's episode is on the tragic murder of Drew Shadeen. Drew Katrina Shadeen was born on September 26, 1981 in Minneapolis, Minnesota to her parents, Alan and Linda. From birth until 1992, she lived in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area until she and her family moved to Pequot Lakes, Minnesota. She attended Pequot Lakes High School and graduated in the year 2000. Drew participated in volleyball, basketball, and was an avid golfer that won the Golf Spirit Award. In 1999, she was crowned Pequot Lakes Homecoming Queen. After high school, Drew enrolled at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks and joined the Gamma Phi Beta sorority. From everything I learned about Drew, she was an incredible and vibrant young woman. She had a major love for all things artistic, ranging from art, drawing, and music. And Drew won her first artistic award in just kindergarten. During college, Drew worked two jobs. She was working at the Columbia Mall in Grand Forks, North Dakota at Victoria's Secret, and she also had a job working as a waitress at night at a local bar. She was an extremely responsible person and literally had all of her ducks in a row to help her achieve success in life. She loved to spend time with her family, her loved ones, and her closest friends, and she did a lot of volunteer work for people who were underprivileged as well as survivors of violence. Drew seemed like the type of person who had an incredibly big heart, and if you needed her, she was there for you no matter what. Drew had a boyfriend named Chris that she had an incredible relationship with, and she had a ton of friends who loved and adored her. Chris described Drew as a wonderful woman and said, quote, You meet her for five minutes and feel like you've known her your whole life. She loves people. She loves to laugh. A very caring person and her picture. Her picture speaks miles of her. You get to know her from seeing that smile. That smile is infectious, end quote. On the evening of Saturday, November 22, 2003, 22-year-old Drew Shadeen was working her normal shift at Victoria's Secret in the Columbia Mall, and her shift ended at 4 p.m. Right after work, she went over to a store called Marshall Fields, where she wanted to find herself a new purse before she had to go to her second job as a waitress. 
around 5 p.m. after she finished up shopping, she called her boyfriend Chris to chat with him while she walked to her car that was parked in the mall parking lot. Drew was her normal self, according to Chris, and her calling him between her shifts was a normal and typical thing that she did. Working two jobs can be tiring and rough on a social life, but she made sure to stay in touch with her boyfriend, who she cared very much about, and called him when she could. Chris said that Drew was in a great mood as she chatted about her day. But while they were on the phone, something strange happened. During their phone call, Chris heard Drew say, okay, 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 and then the call abruptly ended. Chris would later tell authorities that when he heard Drew say, okay, 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 that she didn't seem like she was panicked or frantic at all, and it didn't really sound like an emergency or anything of that nature. In December of 2003, ABC News reported that Chris said he did not feel any particular urgency when his conversation with Drew was suddenly cut off, and that she had even blurted out the words, oh my god. Chris was quoted saying, quote, I did not know the sense of urgency of this phone call at the time. I never in a million years dreamed that this was happening. There was no sense of urgency, more just a phone call being cut off for any number of reasons. Honestly, I had no idea that this terrible thing was happening, end quote. So when this phone call ended, Chris just kind of brushed off the call and didn't really think much of it and figured that Drew would call when she could. So about three hours passed, and Drew hadn't called again until 7.42 p.m. When Chris answered the phone expecting to hear Drew's voice on the other end, he was surprised to hear just a static noise and what sounded like buttons on Drew's phone being pressed. According to the ABC News article, Chris instructed Drew to move to a different area so he could hear her, thinking it was once again a bad connection, but nothing happened. This call was said to have lasted about a minute, and when it ended, Chris tried to call Drew's phone back, but wasn't successful in reaching her. So at this point, Chris felt super uneasy about both of the phone calls, and he started thinking more about the way that first call with Drew ended. So he called Drew's mother, Linda, to tell her what had happened, and Linda then called Drew's father, Alan, who lived nearby, to see if he could go and check on Drew and to help find out if something had happened. Her family and boyfriend Chris felt that something must be wrong because Drew was the type of person that always made sure to keep in contact with people. If a phone call of hers dropped, because this is again in 2003, the cell services weren't as amazing as what they are now, so calls would frequently get dropped. So when her calls would get dropped, she would make sure that she called someone back. Or if she had a missed call from someone, she would make sure she called them back. So the fact that the first call ended abruptly, and then the second call was just full of static, and she didn't try and get back in touch with Chris immediately after, it just wasn't lining up with how they knew their Drew to be. One of the first things that Chris and her family did was to check to see if Drew was at her waitressing job and that this was just some kind of a mix-up. 
but they flew into a complete panic when they learned that she never showed up for her job that night, which again was out of character. Drew's father, Alan, rushed over to the Columbia Mall to see if he could find Drew or her car or see if anyone knew anything. When he arrived to the mall, he found Drew's car still parked in the parking lot. But what was a surprise to him was that Drew's car wasn't parked where she typically parked when she had a shift at Victoria's Secret. Drew was the type of person who stuck to a schedule and a routine. Drew always made sure that she parked in the same area of the parking lot when she worked and her family knew that. So her father was surprised to find that the car wasn't in its usual spot. When he checked the car, he found that the driver's side door was locked, but oddly, her passenger door was unlocked. Inside the car, the purse and other things that she had purchased were kind of like strewn out. Also lying on the ground near the passenger rear corner of the car was a bloody knife sheath. Authorities were called and Drew was reported missing. Now, while waiting for authorities to arrive at the scene where her car was, Drew's father, Alan, waited hoping and praying that his daughter would just turn up and that this was just a complete misunderstanding, but she never did. News traveled to Drew's friends and co-workers that she was missing and everyone started calling others to see if they could find Drew. But every call ended with no answers and nobody had spoken to her other than Chris right before she seemingly vanished. Not only did her loved ones and sorority sisters help call to see if anyone had spoken to or seen her, but they took it upon themselves also to get the media involved. And this was a story that spread extremely fast and people were quick to get involved in the search for 22-year-old Drew Shadeen. So many people within the community jumped up to help this family search for Drew, and I always admire a community that really rallies together in these situations. It's a situation that you never want to find yourself in, or a situation you never want someone within your community to find themselves in, but it's so admirable when complete strangers want to do anything they can to help. And that is exactly what happened here with Drew's case. The community came out of the woodwork to offer any and all help. They helped search. They helped spread awareness on her story. They helped share her name, her face, and they helped distribute and hang missing persons posters. And it wasn't long before everyone in the community knew about Drew and knew what she looked like. This area that Drew went missing in Grand Forks, North Dakota, is right on the edge of the Minnesota border, so they had searches happening in both states. Drew's family went above and beyond in the search for her. They started a website called Find Drew, where they shared pictures of her in hopes that her story would spread far and wide, and that someone would know something and come forward with information. So not only was the community pulling together with searches, but authorities were diving in deep, trying to find this young woman. One of the first things investigators did, aside from ground searches, was to get in touch with Drew's cell phone company, because clearly Drew or someone had the phone on three hours after that first call with Chris when Drew's phone called him back. 
It was so important for authorities to narrow down or pinpoint where that second call had taken place. Three days after she went missing, authorities got that information, and they learned that her phone had pinged off a tower that was located near Crookston, Minnesota, which this was about a 42-minute or so drive from where she was last known to be at the Columbia Mall. When they got the location of this ping, authorities went to that area and began searching for clues, and they were able to locate one of Drew's shoes below a bypass. For authorities, they were really glad to have found the shoe because it meant that they were being led in the right direction for the search. However, for her family, finding Drew's shoe and no Drew was looking more and more like she wouldn't be returning home alive. They felt that between her car being found with a bloody knife sheath nearby, now her shoe being found and no Drew, things weren't going to end well. But the search continued on. Her family was more desperate than ever to find their daughter, and they did everything they could to help aid in the search, even if it just meant staying behind and helping prepare meals for the searchers. They also provided the searchers with hats and gloves to wear during their searches because this was November in North Dakota and Minnesota, and it's freezing cold with snow-covered grounds. But the searchers and authorities didn't seem phased by this frigid weather. Their only goal was to find Drew. A witness came forward that said that they had seen Drew in the parking lot of the Columbia Mall giving a ride to an older man to his car that was also parked in the parking lot. And authorities started getting concerned that this was potentially a luring situation from a dangerous individual. And as a standard precaution, they decided to pull up a list of sexual predators that are known to both live around the mall as well as the Crookston, Minnesota area where the cell phone ping came from. They also looked up predators that had previous kidnapping charges as well. On December 1st, just over a week after Drew went missing, authorities announced that they had a suspect, and that suspect was 50-year-old Alfonso Rodriguez Jr. Alfonso Rodriguez Jr. had an extensive record and was actually a level 3 sex offender. And what that means to be a level 3 sex offender is that you're the highest risk to re-offend and there is a significant threat to the public's safety. And I just want to say the fact that we even allow these level 3 sex offenders out of prison is absolutely mind-blowing and awful considering what happened to Drew. So Afonso clearly has a past with sex crimes and violent ones at that. So let's just go ahead and get into his record. His record started in 1974 when he committed two rapes and then was charged with those rapes in 1975 and sentenced to 15 years in prison. But Afonso only served four years for those rapes and was released in 1979 from the sex offender program. A year later, in 1980, Alfonso stabbed and attempted to abduct a woman. He was caught and sentenced to 23 years in prison for this case. 
In May of 2003, Alfonso was released from prison. And let me remind you that Drew went missing in November of 2003, so just six months after his release. Authorities brought Alfonso in for questioning, and to their surprise, he admitted that he was near the Columbia Mall on November 22nd, but he said that he was in the area because he was seeing the movie called Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and that he couldn't have been involved in her disappearance because he was at a movie during that time. When the authorities checked into his alibi, they found that it was the dumbest alibi that you could come up with because that movie wasn't playing at any of the theaters nearby. You'd think that if you were lying and saying you were going to a movie that you would at least make sure it was an actual movie that was still currently playing in your area. But Alfonso clearly did not. When he was clearly lying about his alibi, investigators decided to dig deeper in what he was doing that day, and they started pulling up his bank records and reviewing his transactions from that day. They found that he had several transactions that took place at the Columbia Mall not long before Drew was abducted. With this news in hand, they were able to take Alfonso's car to be searched, and they found a whole lot of stuff inside of it. In the trunk of the car, they found a knife that was soaking in some sort of solution. It is believed that whatever this solution was, it was his attempt at cleaning it or destroying evidence that could have potentially been on this knife. They also found blood spatter all over the back of the car. According to NBC News, the blood inside of his car would eventually be positively matched as belonging to Drew. Despite being arrested, Alfonso refused to speak. No matter what they did or say to him, he wouldn't admit anything, nor would he tell authorities where Drew's body was or what he did with her. ABC News reported that days after his arrest, Drew's mother called Alfonso's mother and had pled with her to tell her son to tell police where her daughter was, but that didn't do any good because Alfonso remained tight-lipped no matter what. On April 17, 2004, Drew's body was finally discovered in a drainage ditch near Crookston, Minnesota. When they discovered her body, Drew was partially nude with her wrists bound behind her back. Drew had been brutally raped and stabbed, and she had also suffered from a serious cut across her neck. She also had a rope around her neck that when they found her, there was also pieces of a grocery bag caught in the rope. So investigators assumed that at some point in time, she must have had a bag that was placed over her head. Also found near her body was Drew's cell phone. When the autopsy was performed, the manner of death was obviously ruled as a homicide, but they could not determine the exact cause of death. But they ruled that it was either from suffocation from the bag being placed over her head paired with the rope around her neck, or it could have been the wound to her neck, or she possibly died from exposure to the weather. 
On Drew's body, they were able to find hair and fibers that the killer had left behind, and they matched Alfonso Rodriguez Jr. So because Alfonso kidnapped Drew from North Dakota and then crossed into Minnesota, this case became a federal case that would be held in federal court which also meant that Alfonso could receive the death penalty because the federal government allows the death penalty and both North Dakota and Minnesota did not. When it came time for the trial, it was an extremely long and drawn-out process with a lot of hurdles that stood in the way for prosecutors. But on September 22, 2006, a month shy of three years since the abduction and murder of Drew, Alfonso Rodriguez Jr. was found guilty of the murder of Drew. He was also sentenced to the death penalty. NBC News reported that this case was the first death penalty case that the state of North Dakota had seen in more than 100 years. Everyone was so relieved that this monster was finally going to get what he deserved. Someone like that didn't deserve to ever have been released from prison when he had previously. For him to go on not once but twice to commit awful attacks on women after that first arrest is truly tragic. Now, unfortunately... I am sad to report that in September of 2021, the death penalty sentence was overturned. Cairo 7 did a great job with covering the details, so I'm just going to go over what they had wrote in an article that will also be linked in the description of this episode. But pretty much the death sentence was overturned, but the murder conviction was upheld. District Judge Ralph Erickson ruled that Alfonso Rodriguez is entitled to a new sentencing hearing in this case. Judge Erickson cited unsupported, misleading, and inaccurate trial testimony from a medical examiner as a factor in his decision to overturn the sentence. He also cited the failure of defense lawyers to properly explore Alfonso's mental health. He said, quote, Rodriguez's trial counsel directed their own mental health experts to not discuss the circumstances of the crime with Rodriguez. This limitation led to the deficient investigation into Rodriguez's mental health conditions, both in general and at the time of the commission of the crime, end quote. Limiting their client's mental health evaluation may have cost him a valid defense based on his psychiatric history. He goes on to state, quote, an adequate investigation would have exposed a possible insanity defense and at a minimum information indicating that Rodriguez suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder so severe that he sometimes has disassociative experiences. In the appeal, which will actually be linked in the description of this episode if you wish to read it, it also argued that the medical examiner, Michael McGee, offered an opinion, not fact, when he testified that evidence showed Rodriguez had raped Drew. It states that the medical examiner's testimony in court contradicted his own report from Drew's autopsy, which did not state that semen was found on or near her body. 
which Judge Erickson agreed, saying that unrefuted evidence uncovered since the trial indicates there was no evidence of sexual assault. He also stated, quote, the government's theory that Rodriguez raped Shadeen because semen was detected in lab testing was based on nothing more than rank speculation. Speculative expert opinions are admissible, end quote. Now, according to care11.com, the federal prosecutors tried to appeal the decision to overturn the sentence, but they later dropped their appeal and stated that they still intend to seek the death penalty when he is resentenced, which this article was published in March of 2022. I do not believe that the date for the resentencing has been scheduled yet because I couldn't find it, but when I see that date listed, I will keep you guys posted on that. But it's incredibly tragic that Drew's family has to go through this process all over again. So let's hope that once more he will be sentenced to death like he deserves. Now, backing up just a tad, during this appeals process, some of the details of Drew's death and what led to it came to light. When Alfonso finally started to talk about the murder, and again, I will have the full appeal listed in the description of this episode, but I did want to highlight a few things that I read in there. So allegedly, when Alfonso saw Drew inside of the mall, he thought that she resembled a woman who had abused him as a child, and that triggered his PTSD symptoms, and he began to experience a disassociative state. Alfonso followed Drew outside and forced himself into her car. They then drove a short distance until they switched into his car that was also parked in the parking lot and then drove off. So this explains why her car was in a different location than normal. He then found a side road and pulled off. Allegedly, he had no plans to take her life, and he repeatedly told her that he would let her go. He tied her hands with a piece of cord that he had that he used while tending to his mother's yard work. It was said that at one point when he was driving around town with Drew in the car, she began to struggle and bang on the windows. After he wasn't able to subdue her, he struggled with her and eventually hit her, knocking her out and drawing blood. Once she was bleeding from the face and unconscious, he put a plastic bag over her head to contain the blood and he wrapped it with a piece of cord. He claims that his memory was very fragmented because of this disassociative episode. He alleges that he does not remember when exactly he realized that she was dead, but he knows that he then panicked and drove around looking for a place to put her body when he realized it. I am very curious on how this will all play out when the resentencing happens because there's a lot of details within this appeal that makes it seem like Alfonso is not quite all there. And again, you can read what I mean if you check out the appeal for yourself. So I'm curious on how they will rule in this resentencing. Again, when that time comes, I will keep you guys posted. Now, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I believe there is a lot to learn in these true crime cases, and Drew's case is one that I feel we can learn a lot from. 
Alfonso said how he picked Drew to attack was based off the fact that she was the perfect person to target. She was walking alone in a parking lot and was occupied with talking on the phone. She was not watching her surroundings and she was not being overly aware of those around her. And so he felt like she was an easy person to catch off guard and attack. This is also how he said he picked his other victims as well. And I watched a documentary a long time ago, and I wish so badly I can remember what it was, but it had serial killers and serial rapists, and they said that they always go for people who aren't paying attention. In today's world, we live in a world full of technology, and it often consumes us. We can be so busy checking Facebook, Instagram, or even TikTok while we are doing things as simple as crossing a parking lot. I see so many people looking down at their phones and texting not paying attention to their surroundings, which in that documentary I mentioned, those people mentioned people looking down as someone that they'd attack opposed to someone with their heads up. After watching that, I always make sure I am looking up, my head's on the swivel, and I make eye contact with people as I pass. I'm probably being over the top sometimes, but I never want someone to think that I am an easy target because I'm distracted or not paying attention. So next time you're walking alone, think of Drew and try and remember to be alert and aware of your surroundings and of those that are near. Also, as mentioned earlier, I admire when families turn their tragedy into something positive, and that is what Drew's family has done. On July 27, 2006, President George W. Bush signed into law the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act, which includes a law to honor the memory of Drew Shadeen. This ended up changing the name of the National Sex Offender Public Registry to the Drew Shadeen National Sex Offenders Public Website. This website provides information to the public on the whereabouts of registered sex offenders regardless of state, territory, or tribal boundaries. This government website links all of the offenders registered to one national search site, and I am sure we've all heard about this website. Parents, employers, and others concerned can use this website search tool to identify location information on sex offenders living, working, and attending school not only in their own neighborhood, but in other nearby states and communities. This website also provides information about sexual abuse and how to protect yourself and loved ones and how to minimize the risk of potential victimization. There is also now an app that you can download on the App Store that is free and easy to use. It's pretty amazing that all of this information is now at the tip of our fingers at any given time. I will also have the link for the NSOPW website in the description of this episode as well. So if you want to look up more information about this app and all that it offers, you can read up on it there. Drew Shadeen was far too young to have her life tragically ripped from her. She had so much going for her and she was such a light in everyone's lives. But she also has impacted the way we live today in such a huge way since her death. 
Because of that loss, incredible things have changed and been put in place, so her death was not in vain, and her family can rest knowing that Drew will live on forever and will forever make an impact on lives. Drew and her story will never, ever be forgotten. That is all I have on this case, and I will keep everyone posted, as I said, when the resentencing of Alfonso Rodriguez takes place. Make sure you guys are a part of our private Facebook group. You can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. You can also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you want more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally and see what I'm doing in life, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's episode. Kenzie will be back Monday with another Missing Monday case to share with you all. Until then, be aware and take care. Bye-bye.